September, Monday the 20th. The days go by, the wind blows and carries the days with it. Ramadan is over, Eid is over. Samia stayed with my mother, I went back to Casa. I'm with Hamid in his shed and we're waiting for the neighbor's niece. The day is almost over, but it's still hot and my jalaba is clinging to me. I tried pulling on the sides and the bottom to stretch the fabric for it to cling less, but it was no use, and sweat is turning the inside of my thighs all wet. The summer doesn't want to end. On the television, the king is meeting someone once again. He's in America. The French president, or whoever that gnome is, is standing next to him. Honestly, I wouldn't say no to a job like his. I'd get to travel, see the world, give speeches on television. But to tell the truth, if I were in his place, I wouldn't travel to those middle-of-nowhere places he normally goes. Now he's in America, that's fine. But normally you should see where he goes. Ben Gurir, Asila, Warzazat. I want nothing to do with that. I would only go to high-class countries, Europe, Sweden, Brazil, Mexico. I'd leave the deserts to the beggars. I'd never wear the same outfit twice. And if I were hot like I am now, I wouldn't give a damn. I'd walk around naked. And if someone had a problem with it, they could say it to my face. Or even better than walking around naked, I would install a portable AC on myself. I'd put it over my head on a hat. It would keep me cool from morning to night and from my hair to my feet. And that would only be for when I want to move around. Because most of the time, I would sprawl out happily in front of the television in a chilled room and I wouldn't move until winter came back. Those who wish to see me would know where to find me. Fui, Hamid says, his eyes on the door where the curtain has fallen once again. Am I going to spend the, spend my life keeping tabs on that fucking curtain? And this inferno, even the nail, doesn't want the fabric rubbing against it. Let it go. There's nothing to do, I say, ashing into the little teacup placed in the middle of the table. Hamid still has not fixed the table. Too bad for him. He'll regret it the day he takes the tea's burning kiss on his thighs. The stench of armpit isn't enough for you? You want to add the cigarette stink too, he says to me. Don't go getting all worked up with me, I answer, turning to look at him. I know how to get worked up too. And I place my elbows on my knees, spreading my legs, because it's the only position where I get comfortable. That's when she arrives. Welcome to episode 62 of the Bullock podcast. This is Ursula Lindsay, and with me, as usual, is Marsha Lynx-Qualey, and just reading to you, our guest for this week, Emma Ramadan, uh, with whom we will be discussing uh, two uh, new Moroccan novels that she has just translated. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, Emma. So I'll just briefly introduce Emma Ramadan for those who don't know her. She is a literary translator from the French, based in Providence, Rhode Island, where she co-owns Riff Raff Bookstore and Bar, which... I think I understand is is closed currently with, for COVID pandemic. She is the recipient of a Fulbright and NEA Translation Fellowship and the 2018 Albertine Prize. She's translated more than a dozen books, including Sphinx by Anne Garita, The Shutters by Ahmed Bouaneni, A Country for Dying by Abdullah Taya, and Straight from the Horse's Mouth, which you just heard by Miriam Alawi. Uh, next week... She'll be teaching a short course in translation titled, What Can a Translation Be? An Exploration of Experimental Translation. And just to mention two upcoming books that she has, uh, Kamal Daoud's Zabor or The Palms, The Psalms, sorry, is forthcoming in March. Um, 
And I'm particularly excited to see that Angareta's Concrete in Emma's translation is forthcoming in April. Thank you again, Emma, for, for joining us. Thank you both. Happy to be here. And if you could just tell us a bit about Straight from the Horse's Mouth um, uh, that you read from at the beginning. Yeah, so Straight from the Horse's Mouth, it's it's a really, it's probably the most fun book I've translated so far. It's about uh, Jamia, who is a, a 34-year-old sex worker in Morocco um, who you know, it's it's sort of just kind of trying to get by. She's really sassy. She's really headstrong. And then one day, um, this woman who arrives at the end of the passage I just read, who's a filmmaker from, uh, who, who's living in Europe kind of comes over to Morocco and decides she wants to make a film about, um, you know, this, a scene as something that happens in Morocco, sort of in the setting of sex workers and asks Jamia essentially to be, uh, part of the film and Jamia goes on to get the starring role in the film and her whole life sort of changes and we're, and we're watching her uh, navigate these changes in her life. And it's, it's a lot of fun and it's um, she's a really funny narrator and uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed translating this book. Yeah. I, um, I'm, you must have, I really enjoyed reading it as well. Um, so, so um, one of the things that I, one of the things I found so important about it was that we were laughing sort of along with Jamia rather than laughing at Jamia. I felt like we, at some points we were sort of sitting on a razor's edge, right? Like here she is, a working class sex worker character um, who's in Casablanca, being and this is uh, Miriam Alawi's first novel, I think, right? I believe so. Um, and you know, I don't think, I don't know actually anything about Miriam, but I assume that she's more of the horse mouth, the filmmaker character rather than the, I, I looked her up and I I think she was a journalist at Telkel and some other publications. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. Um, so, but it was, to me, I never felt like she was winking at me. Like we were both making fun of Jamia together, but rather that, you know, Jamia's voice was so powerful in the book. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think, if anything, it's usually Jamia who's sort of laughing at, at the other characters in the book and who's we're sort of seeing everything through her eyes. We're, we're, we're getting a very kind of critical look at Horsemouth, the film director. Um, we're getting sort of a critical look at these men that Jamia is with uh, as part of her job. We're getting a critical look of her mother, of like people on the bus, of the other sex workers. You know, it's it's really through her lens. And when we laugh, we're sort of laughing either with her or we're laughing at her jokes. And I think it is in, in very good spirits. And it is, you never feel like she's the victim here, either of, of the reader or the author or of the other characters in the book. Yeah, to me, that was so important that I was identified that, you know, I never felt I never felt pity for her. No, even in in her worst circumstances, I identified with her and, you know, uh, I hurt with her, but I never felt sorry for Um, her. There's a a passage at one point in the book where she's talking about this Moroccan singer that she really likes is kind of like a, a sort of patron figure, I feel like, of the story, uh, Najat Atabu, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. She's a very famous uh, uh, 
female Moroccan singer and she gets mentioned more than once in the story. There's like a scene where she dances to her music and and there's a scene where she describes the music and she says, uh, I know what I liked about her. It's that she always sings about ordinary things, seemingly banal stories that could happen to anyone a thousand times a day. There's always a moment in her songs when she says something that's exactly what happened to you as if she were with you at that moment or as if her brain were connected to yours when she sat down to write, she kept me good company. And I felt like that was like almost a description also of what the author is trying to do. I mean, that that it's, it's a, it's a non-sensationalistic depiction of sex work. I mean, it's present, I mean, obviously a lot of dramatic things happen, but the tone, like you say, I mean, it's not mocking, but it's also not like sentimental. It's not, which I would think is even more of a temptation with this kind of genre or subject uh, or something that I would be more concerned with. Uh, and it's it's her day-to-day. It really is her day-to-day. And it kind of gets you with that, right? Like uh, it's con- it's a convincing day-to-day. Yeah, it, I think that's that's spot on. And I, there's a lot of, um, most of the book were sort of privy to her, you know, what her days are like, the way that she interacts, uh, the, like the way that she has to go and buy alcohol from a certain person at a certain time. Otherwise, you know, the, she won't be able to get it for um, the girls to all drink together. Or, you know, there's just like these little scenes, these little details of even like kind of, boring things of you know her sitting in Hamid's shed and they're them the two of them just sort of like sitting around and sweating a lot of the time and you know there's um I think those moments are are really special and I think they're they're sort of like this is this is going to seem like a tangent but off I just saw someone tweet the other day about how you never see a character in a book go to the bathroom but like we know that you know people have to go to the bathroom like 20 times a day and so you know like where are all these scenes of people doing normal things and this book has so many of those you know like her sitting in the window and like eating sunflower seeds and spitting the shells into the newspaper or uh, her just like listening to music in her apartment and dancing around or sitting on the street and just sort of watching people go by and um, I I really like that for this reason. And then, of course, you get into she's cast in this film and her life takes on all these changes. But at the same time, even during those parts of the book where she is in the in the film, you still see the, the like the normal little episodes of her, you know, in her hotel room, like soaking in the luxury of this hotel room and, you know, the way that the other people in her community are reacting to this film being seen in their neighborhood or the film being shot in their neighborhood. And I think that it really is a special touch that, that um, the author gives to this to this book of, you know, it is kind of this like, seemingly sensational story but it's told from a place that is so everyday and so uh relatable and and kind of you know just very simple right like the sweat between your legs I mean actually see that funnily enough part of that passage was one of the ones where I really couldn't relate because I you know right now it is winter and I'm like no no I want the summer bring bring the Moroccan summer (laughs) back right now (laughs) <laughs> yeah and then as soon as you get to Moroccan summer you're gonna have the opposite I also feeling. think that so I actually have I'm about 
two thirds into the book, so I haven't read the end. Um, and uh, and I, but I think this choice of having the like the the filmmaker come and make a movie about her life is also interesting. It allows the author, like you said, Marcia, clearly the author is actually the filmmaker. Like that's that's the character. She probably she did a lot of research for this book, you know, and she's a reporter and and uh, and it allows her to kind of like tell that story of an outsider coming in. And it also allows you to kind of reference the fact that there is a lot of reporting and a lot of art made about this question of like sex work and prostitution and women's status in Morocco. Right. And to kind of bring in that whole question of like how it's represented. Absolutely. So, so when I was first sort of reading around the book, um, the first thing I was reading some reviews in, in, in French of the release, and a lot of them mentioned um, a, a recent film about Moroccan sex workers. But the thing that I stumbled across that I was most interested in is that I, I don't know if e either of you um, followed this, but it, so there was in 2003, there was this young woman in, in Marrakesh named Najat Ben Salem, who, uh, who was just sort of, um, uh, you know, this guy, she was a working class woman, this, guy, this film, French filmmaker who came to Morocco to film, make this film, Jacques uh, Doillon. Um, he, he was looking, I guess in his work, he often is just looking for someone off the street. So he found this young woman, Raja, uh, to play the role of this, uh, servant and part-time sex worker who in this kind of, I know I haven't seen his film, but in this, what sounds like a very tired and predictable way becomes the love interest of his older, wealthy, 50 some, 50 something Frenchman, um, her employer and the sort of tension between this teenage sex worker who's a servant in his house and the um, and the wealthy Frenchman. So, but the the interesting part of the story is that this the the woman who starred in the film, who previously was sort of um, you, you know just kind of working itinerantly, and I think she was like a a part time wrestler or something in 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 Gemma El Fanat. Um, she, she won a, a prestigious award at the Venice Film Festival, and I think she won an award at the Mar Marrakesh uh, Film Festival as well. Um, but after this, she, so in, in much the same way, she was sort of this, um, nobody who's associated in, in some way, she was not herself a sex worker, but she played a sex worker in the film. Um, and, and then suddenly she was shot to stardom and, and won these prestigious awards. Um, however, with her, um, she, you know, she just went now. She, I think she, uh, has since then sold rolled cigarettes. There was a, a documentary. She went apparently to the Marrakesh film festival for years, trying to, uh, get in, trying to become part of the industry. And, um, she wasn't able to. So to me, <laughs> this is like taking that story and making the world the way Miriam Alewi wanted it to be. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. And I, and that makes me, that's devastating um, to think that somebody could be sort of, you know, given that opportunity and like sort of used or exploited in a specific way that seems like it could be mutually beneficial. But then as soon as it stops being beneficial for one party, she sort of just dumped and, and never helped again. And, and that is not to give away the ending of this book. Um, but it is the opposite that kind of plays out here in a really interesting and exciting way. And I think 
Yeah. Wow. That, that I'm so glad this book didn't end in that way. Yeah. Well, so apparently then there was a 2015 documentary made about her life and how it, you know, it did not have the fairy tale ending. Um, and then she said in an interview in 2016, when she was finally allowed back on the red carpet at the Marrakesh International Film Festival. Tonight, I'll be on the red carpet at 5 a.m. I have to be in the retail market to, to buy vegetables that I'll sell. By the end of the day, I'll go to Gemma Fanet to sell cigarettes. I always dream of the red carpet, but I stay realistic. And one of the things that I loved about this book that was that it was so embodied and so real, and yet she didn't, she was not obligated she to she stay realistic. She doesn't begrudge a happy ending. Right. I mean, the other mm -hmm. example of the cinematic treatment of sex work, the movie you reference is, is Much Loved, right? Um, which came out now, mm. I guess, quite a few years ago now, four, four years ago? And was banned four, in Four Morocco. years ago, maybe. Uh, and the actress who plays right. the sex worker had to leave the country eventually because of how much she said she was harassed and attacked in the street because the movie was... Uh, criticized as uh, presenting a negative image of the country, it was sort of seen as a, as a you know tarnishing the the image of 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 Morocco by talking about this, and that's something that I think you get into a lot with with art uh, around this topic uh, is is you know the 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 de the denial of a lived reality right i mean not just art just with, with discourse around this right now and it's actually been a debate in morocco in recent years and now i'm sort of talking more as a reporter than than a, than a literary critic but you know there's there's been this huge debate about like why do we have all these laws that criminalize behaviors that are incredibly common why do we have a law that criminalizes sex outside of marriage when we all know lots of people are having sex outside of marriage and then the law is only applied unfairly basically against you know women you know people who are marginalized in some way or like political dissidents and like it's not applied fairly and similarly with sex work like we know it's taking place and yet you know not only is it criminalized but then like depicting it at all is is considered like in not just in poor taste but sort of like uh, uh an unpatriotic thing to do and i think this book is definitely taking a position on that like the like the like she's taking a position about like not sweeping this reality under the carpet right and she's also I mean, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, is it sort of just a very normal depiction of what it means to be a sex worker? I mean, it's not like, you know, we don't see Jamia living in like extreme poverty and she's not able to feed her child and she's like crying all the time. You know, it's not that kind of depiction. It's very like, oh yeah, I like do this and then I'll like go to the market and then I'll have some wine and I'll go to the bars and, and like maybe one of my clients will like take me to Al Jadida and then I'll come back and I'll be hung over and I'll sleep in my bed for a whole day. It's like, it's not this, um, it paints it as being a very normal part of these, of like certain communities and, and just a, a very normal part of some women's lives in Morocco. And of the city and of yeah, society. And, and, any, and anywhere, right? Yeah. Yeah. And everywhere. I mean, this book in particular speaking about Morocco, but we know that this is like what it, you know, it, it's everywhere and it's, 
sort of the same, maybe not exactly the same everywhere, but you can imagine, you know, a sex worker in America having a sort of similar existence. Yeah. I mean, so I I do, there are a number of books that I've read, not written by Moroccans, um, where the Moroccan female character is always a sex worker, where, you know, there's this, I think there, you know, there is a regional stereotype of Moroccan women as, as sex workers. And so, you know, I do, um, I don't object, you know, at all to telling real stories, but I do sort of instantly like get somewhat, you know, my antenna up if, particularly if it's, you know, um, a novel with characters from everywhere and, you know, the Lebanese woman character is obsessed with her appearance and the Moroccan character is a sex worker and, you know, um, but some, somehow this was so, I guess, anti, you know, it, it broke everything to me, broke down things to me because she was so embodied and so, um, her voice was so powerful. Yeah. And I think what you said earlier is that, you know, you never pity her in the book. And so I think there's sort of a difference between when non-Moroccan authors are painting a picture of these Moroccan sex workers versus, uh, this depiction of Jamia as being, you know, a woman who can take care of herself, has a lot of fun in her life, like really lives life to the fullest. And then, um, is given this like great opportunity and all of these things. It's, I think there's like a difference in the way that these stories are told that can either make them feel problematic or can make them feel like very right. And I think this author kind of really gets it right. Mm. So I'm really curious in your interview with Asymptote, you said that Uther Press came to you suggesting that you translate this and then that Miriam sent you notes about uh, creating Jamia's voice, but you didn't say what, (laughs) what Miriam's notes were. Yeah, I mean, I I think the the main takeaway from the interaction I had with the author was um, that she basically wanted to make sure I was giving myself permission to loosen up and make it really conversational and make her voice like very fun and funny and whatever that meant in English that I should do that and not you know, I, I think I tend to do this thing when publishers come to me and they say, you know, audition to do this book for us, which I think is a really, is obviously makes a lot of sense um, as a translator to be asked to like do a, an audition sample for a book, but also can be a really degrading and very competitive and not very transparent process and can feel very bad sometimes. Um, but in this instance, it was a really nice interaction where they said, you know, we think you'd be great for this book where you just do a sample. But I tend to, in those samples, like if I don't have the job yet, I feel like I have this pressure to show that I, I like really know French and that I can like really, I really understand what's happening on the page. And so sometimes I don't give myself as much permission to like be playful and fun and a little bit looser with it as I would if I knew I had the project and it was mine. Um, and so I think I had a very pleasant experience in this case where I had sort of stuck closer to the French and the author and instead of the publishing house being like, oh, you stuck too close to the French, we're going to go with somebody else. The author was like, give yourself permission. This book is really fun. This character is really fun. The voice is supposed to be fun. And so just like work your magic and do what you need to do. And that was really helpful because then from that point forward, once I actually started translating the book, I did feel like I was able to kind of 
close my eyes a little bit, take a step back from the words on the page and sort of just imagine this character speaking. And I was able to get much closer to her voice that way. Excellent. So you basically, um, in order to create the voice, just sort of um, mentally imagined the character. Yeah. And it was a lot of reading out loud to myself. I mean, I was working on this book I was finishing it up when I was at a translation residency. And so I wasn't, I didn't have anybody around me and I would just kind of like lock myself in my room and read the book out loud to myself. And if it didn't sound like somebody actually speaking, if it sounded like a character written on a page, then I knew that something was off and I would, and I would sort of get, let myself get a little, you know, a little more free with the language just to make sure that it, it actually sounded like when I spoke it out loud, I could, hear this character in it and I could imagine this character saying it and so reading reading dialogue especially out loud has been my my favorite thing to do for a book like this I'm happy you asked that Marcia and I was also very interested to to hear this 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 story um because I was also curious about just like the process by which um you you select the books that that you translate and we're talking about two uh, Moroccan books written in French, like, is this a complete coincidence? Um, and, and actually, it's the third uh, Moroccan author that you translate because you've translated... The, the fourth. I, so there's, there's Sorry, Ahmed the fourth. Mouanani's Shutters, <laughs> which, which was a, a beautiful translation. And what's the other? Uh, ah. Fouad Lourouis, um, uh Tessoukine's ah, okay. Pants something. <laughs> So, so I, I know yeah, you spent cu- some time in Morocco, case of I think, trousers, because of the Manani translation. <laughs> so is it, I mean, now do, do, do people come to you? Are you following Moroccan literature in French? Like how, you know, sort of how, how is this developed? Yeah, I mean, so as you said, I, I, I did a Fulbright in Morocco in 2014 or 2014 or 2015. Um and I went specifically to translate Ahmed Buonani's work, working with his daughter Tuda and with Omar Barada and a lot of other really great people over there in, in, in Marrakesh and Rabat. And that was sort of, uh, I, I had like, I knew I wanted to focus on translation and I knew I wanted to go to Morocco. Um, and then I was introduced to Omar and he kind of showed me what they were working on with Ahmed Bonani's work and sent me copies of Bonani's books. And from there it all, it all felt very right. And so that's how I proposed that project. But with, and then while I was there too, I was um, doing a words without borders issue on Moroccan writing. And uh, I was sort of getting very familiar with the Moroccan or like as familiar as I could with the Moroccan literature scene and, and meeting some authors and going to the Salon du Livre in, um, is it in Casablanca? Um, yeah. And, you know, things like that. And then since then, I, I think I feel very happy and lucky to be, to, to have worked on so many Moroccan writers and to be kind of keeping that link that I, or that connection that I made with Morocco, because I feel like it's sort of my, it's my duty and my pleasure to kind of like Morocco was so good to me for a year of my life. And I feel like I will, I like want to keep honoring that experience and I want to keep translating Moroccan writers. Um, But also there's like inevitably a thing that happens where 
in the American publishing market, I can get very pigeonholed because people see my last name and they think, oh, she's Arab. Okay, we'll give her this Arab author to translate, which I love translating books from Morocco and the Middle East and North Africa. But there's also this like, do do publishers think that I'm more qualified than anybody else to translate a book that by an Algerian author or like an Iranian author just because I'm half Lebanese and have an Arab last name and like spent a year in Morocco? It's it's you know there's like always a question mark of why was I approached for this project? Um, but I also you know feel very lucky to have translated these authors that I've translated and. Uh, I will say with uh, with Miriam Aloui, as as I mentioned, I was approached by other press, um, and I've you know some other. Ahmed Bonani was obviously my own pitching, and Fouad Lauri too was my own pitching, um, and but with Abdella Taya, it was sort of a mix of the two in that I uh, was assigned sort of his translating a story of his for the Pen Translation Slam at this Pen. World Voices Festival in New York a few uh, in 2016, and um, it was me and Chris Clark, another French translator, kind of versus each other. We were each reading our versions of Abdella Taya's work, and Abdella was on stage with us, like kind of choosing which translation he preferred, and the audience was watching, and it was all in good fun. It, it wasn't, you know, like a cutthroat experience, but I felt so moved by his work, and I talked to Chris and and we both were so excited about his work that we we sort of from there kept co-translating some short stories of Abdelatayas and then seven stories came to me and said we see, we saw that you've done some work by him we're looking for a translator for his next book would you be interested and that was just so exciting for me because I hadn't I had assumed you know he's already had books translated he doesn't he already has a translator you know it's I can translate these short stories but I would never be able to translate one of his novels. And then that, that happened. And it was really exciting. I, I was so, you know, thrilled to be able to work on one of his books. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of, I, I don't know, I just feel it allows me to, to continue my connection with Morocco, but I'm also not very up on the Moroccan literature scene, um, because I work like three different jobs, and I never <laughs> I don't have t- time to pitch and hustle like these other translators do. Um, but I would like to one day be more in the know. Well, I don't know. Based on the based on the books that you're translating, I think you're pretty up on it. Honestly, <laughs> I mean, it's a very nice selection of, of of work from there, and it's it must have been very nice to have met uh, the author to have met Abdelatia before translating his work. I mean, I, I imagine that's a plus. Oh, yeah. And he also, by total coincidence, um, I live in Providence and Brown University is here and they had him come over to like guest lecture twice since I moved back here. And so being able to kind of and then I also interviewed him at UMass Amherst um, a few months before I started working on this book. And I don't know, I've just had so many uh, so many opportunities to see him in different places in the world. And that feels really special. And I, I don't know, he's like one of those authors that I, and, you know, obviously when I go to Paris too, I always see him and he's one of those authors that I, I, I've, I really feel a kinship with. I feel a friendship with. And I think that is such a beautiful perk of translating sometimes is the connections you make with the authors, the friendships you can 
foster with them. And it doesn't always happen. Um, I don't have a lot of contact with some of the authors I translate, but with Abdelataya, he's just such a beautiful soul. And he, you know, he like is, has so much to give and is so friendly that it's, it's become a really nice relationship. So can you read from that, um, that book? Yeah, of course. Um, I guess, should I explain the book after I read? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and just jump into reading and then you can tell us about A Country for Dying. It was nearly eight o'clock when we arrived at the Jardin du Luxembourg. There was only an hour before closing and that night, that immense garden, imposing, grandiose, was already nearly empty. Mojtaba looked at me. He was delighted. The French are gone. The garden is ours. Only for an hour, Mojtaba, don't forget. That's fine. Let's stay together, Mojtaba. Let's stay together, Zahira. He took my hand and led me around to all the different monuments. He listed several things about the history of the site, its construction, its multiple renovations, its architecture. I remember nothing. It must not have interested me. He cited numerous complicated French names that didn't mean much to me either, and I quickly forgot them. Near the large pond, he let go of my hand. Wait for me here, Zahira? Why? Don't worry, I'll come back. But there's no one left in the garden, Moshtaba. They'll kick us out soon. I know, don't worry. I'll be back in five minutes. That garden was foreign territory. For five long seconds, my body was shot through with monumental panic. I managed to stifle it without knowing where I drew the necessary energy to do so. I looked around me. What I saw was familiar, grass, flowers, some trees, then no, no longer familiar. I had never come here to this neighborhood, to this world. I had never breathed in this scent. I recognize certain buildings that are part of the history of this country, but only from distant memories. Old images of Paris glimpsed on Moroccan television alongside my father some time before his death. They were meant to inspire dreams, to crush us a little bit too. That world is not for you. Look, but only from a distance through a screen. Don't come. Stay where you are. It's not for you. You know, I underline that same passage. Yeah, me too. <laughs> oh, and, <laughs> it's very. It's and by the way, should we say? Book. I think there's like some, some slight background noises. And are those? Is that from your cat on your lap? Sorry. Yes. No. 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 I, I, she also, I, I'm aware that the, when I read from straight from the horse's mouth, she had climbed inside of this like very loud cat maze as well. So I apologize for that. She's being a little rascal this morning. It's, it's very light, but just in case, you know, listeners are wondering, I think sometimes, you know, it's, it's easier if you know what that, what that's, you know, (laughs) (laughs) sound is. Um, so, so yeah, so, uh, and would you mind, um, sort of giving a, a, a little summary of, uh, the, who these characters are? So Zahira and Mushtaba are in the Jardin du Luxembourg and who, who are these characters in the book? Yeah. So, um, well, the book is made up of multiple sections that some of which kind of tie into each other and some of which don't. And uh, these two characters, so Zahira is also a sex worker, and Moshtaba is this um, this immigrant who sort of who shows up, and she runs into him. Um, he fled from Iran and was in France, and and sort of dreamed of going to the Jardin, and uh, and she takes him in, and he stays with her for a month during Ramadan, and then they go to the Jardin together, and um, and. You know, these are 
I, I love this passage because it's talking, it really gets at what the heart of the book is about, which is about these people, normally North African or Middle Eastern, who find themselves in Paris, which is like supposed to be this city of dreams. And um, they find themselves, you know, just on the margins, kind of unable to access this, this particular world. And, uh, and I think, you know, kind of the whole book is about different people who, who have ended up in Paris and maybe find that it's not um, this dream city that they had imagined and maybe find themselves feeling very alienated and marginalized. But there is also still a lot of, of joy in the book. And I think Mojtaba is also a character who um, shows Zahira that there can be joy in these things, even if they are forbidden. No, and this the title, like uh, a country for dying. Does the French title have also the connotation of like a country to die for? Like, would it is does um people does it mean that also that kind of an expression, like in that dream sense? Like, I wondered if it had that double meaning. I don't know. I didn't read it that way in English either, so I'd need to think about it more. Um, I had suggested a different title for the book, actually. Um, but I was what uh, wait what what title did you suggest? I had suggested waiting to die, and then I had like some other suggestion too, because I think for me, the title evokes, and it's like brought up in the book too. It evokes this idea of like, you know the these people come to Paris thinking that they're going to live and like have this new opportunity for a life, but really they get there and and they're just sort of stuck on the margins waiting to die and like it's like a country for dying and not a country for living really and um for these people and so I, that was my I also just from originally I thought a country for dying like rang wrong in my ear somehow I didn't quite like how it sounded in English but the publisher sort of talked me out of it and I'm very fine with it now I think it's a good title now and I it doesn't sound weird to me now but at the time I was like we can't call mm, it that. no I think it works I just wondered when you think about this sort of theme that, that that runs under it of like you know how desirable the place seems uh at first and 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 you know if if uh that singer Najat is sort of like the the patron figure of um, straight out of the horse's mouth, Isabella Ajani, the actress, is the like patron figure of this book, mm. and there's this long um, passage about Ajani and what she meet like, and several of these characters being obsessed with her, and she kind of stands in for France, but also perhaps I mean she was part Algerian for 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 a little bit of their. Uh, you know the dream of becoming French or having a certain life in France um I also find that striking and I think that's biographical I think that's very much I think Abdelataya himself has talked about uh uh how much he admires Ajani and how much he was dying to get to Paris mm -hmm. as a young man himself yeah and this it's funny because Abdullah also ha he has um a few different or at least a couple other, uh, like I translated with Chris Clark, this story of his, that's all about Barbara. Is her name Steinwick? Um, uh -huh. I, another, an actress and these sort of like female figures who are really inspiring either to him or to characters in his story. And I love that 
kind of just in the middle of this book, there's just this like homage to Isabella Johnny, which is so it's it can like seem out of place, but then also feels really correct here. And I and I love that Abdella doesn't necessarily like adhere to what we think of as a normal novel structure. And he sort of um, lets all these layers accumulate into telling one story. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a bit of a dreamlike nature to this story. I mean, I I wouldn't say it's not like it's it's not trying to be like a super realistic social panorama, right? It's it's kind of these these dreams and nightmares of these people, right? I mean, I, yeah. No, no, that's go it. ahead. You go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was just gonna say I think that's a really lovely way of putting it and I hadn't thought about it that way or in those exact terms before but I think that's really spot on and I think um it's sort of this like accumulation of these like you know as as you said dreams and nightmares that that to put together form a life or like give you the silhouette of of different lives yeah I think even at some point we're told you know, maybe I'm not a real person or you can't take this as reality. Um, and, you know, and, and I think I did feel simultaneously sometimes that this was symbolic and a real story and, you know, and that I was, it was okay to be reading them in multiple ways at once. Like the, the gender, um, gender shift I read both as gender shift and as a real character story, but also as, you know, sort of the process of removing the Moroccan-ness or the Algerian-ness from you to become, in order to become French. Mm, that's really nice, yeah. And and the end, too, like the very, um, the last section that feels especially dreamlike, that's this, like, character from back uh, that we know has has sort of, like, not really been a part of the book who's talking about uh who's sort of very disconnected from the rest of the stories um and talking about like going to act in a different country and it's very uh you know I don't know there's just so many different things that you don't know whether to take at face value and you don't really know how they fit into everything else but it doesn't really matter and if you just sort of let everything wash over you you can kind of come out of it with different different meanings and different takeaways. It was interesting that there was a sex worker who wanted to go act in India, you know, yeah. right and, and right after I just read another book that you translated where there was a Moroccan sex worker who ends up maybe acting in another country. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you there was no um this is simply coincidence. Uh you mean in me translating <laughs> these two books? <laughs> these two books, yeah. Oh, it, pure coincidence. I didn't seek out two different books where sex workers go on to um, <laughs> act in foreign countries as like my new state, my new brand. Um, <laughs> it was it was really nice, though, that they came out very close in time because it allows for kind of conversations like this and um, for them to sort of be read alongside each other or for me to talk about them alongside each other because there's obviously a lot of resonances between them. But then it's also an example of like how extremely diverse the stories coming out of Morocco are. And if we just translated more, even, even stories that seem so similar at first glance, you know, they both have sex workers. They're both about uh, Moroccans, whatever, but there there's actually 
they're completely different books and I would never recommend one to some like necessarily, you know, in my bookstore, for example, I'm, I'm hand selling them to two very different readers. Mm. And I think if we continue down this path that we're finally sort of starting on of getting more books in translation from North Africa, from the Middle East, from other countries that aren't, you know, the continental Europe countries, um, then we'll be able to see all the different stories and versions of this coming out that can be put in conversation, but then also have nothing to do with each other in certain ways. And um, yeah, it's nice to kind of work on both of these books and also feel you know, like there, I didn't feel like, oh, thank God I translated straight from the horse's mouth because that really informed my translation <laughs> of the Akaya. No. I was telling somebody in, a, in another interview where they were also asking me about both books that I actually feel like translating of Delataya was much more similar to translating like Marguerite de Ross in a way because of his rhythm and the way he writes his sentences and, you know, the kind of tone of his books. Um, and the tone of his writing and like the propulsion of his writing uh, felt very similar to Duras to me in a way like much, he feels much more similar to Duras to me than to Ahmed Bonani or to Mariam Alawi or to Fouad Lauri. Right. Whereas you would hand sell straight from a horse's mouth to somebody, you know, feminist, funny, uh, enjoyable novel. Yeah. And I do think, you know, like Fouad Lauri also is very funny and his stories are meant to be like very fun and funny. And they're sort of like poking fun at Morocco and also giving you a lens into daily Moroccan life. So maybe like I would sell uh, straight from the horse's mouth to the same person as the strange um, case of Dasakin's trousers. But I, I even think like all four of the books I've translated from Morocco have totally different readerships. Yeah, I I, I... I would totally agree. I, I'm curious. So I think I took this quote from your Words Without Borders intro, but I'm no longer a member. It says, in 2015, 15% of the books in translation were from the French, and just 8.8% of those 113 books were from outside of Europe and Canada. Do you think that's shifted at all since 2015? Um, I, I haven't looked at numbers, but it, my impression is yes, because I know there are now like specific French translators who, for various reasons, have sort of taken it upon themselves to bring over books from X country. Like I know Alison Charette works a lot with Madagascar. Um, I know Jeffrey Zuckerman has been working on books from Mauritius. Um, and I think there's this sort of you know, this desire for for other voices and other things. And I think publishers, especially the smaller, more interesting translation publishers are like hungry to publish those those books because they know that people are hungry to read them. Um, And then I think there's also, you know, possibly part of that is there are so many, there are more French translators and there's not more opportunities. And so we have to create the, we have to like, turn to different voices because, you know, there's only so many dead French white dudes that can be published every year before people like that people actually want to read. And so how do we keep the translated literature interesting and different from each other? And how do we make it so that like, you know, if, if someone is reading straight from the horse's mouth, that's not, um, it's not going to feel the same as reading, you know, whatever other book was translated from French by that publisher. It's, I think I think my my impression is that there there 
we are seeing a bit of a shift and people are seeking out more of those stories, but obviously it's still nowhere near enough and it's still nowhere near as diverse as, as we need it to be. Well, would someone like Taya not be considered, I mean, does he writes in French, he's published by French publishers. Wouldn't his books be counted in, I mean, are distinctions made on the basis of the author's nationality? I mean, wouldn't he be counted as like French, just a book from France? Trend? Um, I mean, in these like statistics and stuff. I mean, in in the statistics that I cited, I did that myself based on the um, database that Chad Post had, had, I don't know if he's still doing it, but had been doing for so long. And I could see, I think it was the author was categorized by not by the place where they were published, but by their nationality. Um, but I, I can't say for sure. I know I like was pulling out the authors who were Moroccan and like making sure that they were more like, as opposed to, you know, some of the authors with, with who were being translated from French published in France and have like Arab sounding names are not all going to be Moroccan. And so I was making sure that I was doing my research on that front. I think because there's not really a publishing industry in Morocco, the way there is in France, I would be hesitant to, you know, not count um, an author who's being published in France as part of the Moroccan literary world, just because, you know, there's not, maybe if there were like a really robust publishing scene in Morocco, they would be just getting published in Morocco instead. I don't know. So I think it's a hard... No, clearly, I mean, clearly there's a, there are, there are reasons in the, in the market and also perhaps reasons in, in terms of, of censorship uh, for, for publishing in France. Although one of the things that I sort of, I mean, I, I, I also appreciate Abdelataya very much as a public figure. Like, I think the things he writes and the interventions he makes in uh, whether he's talking about culture or politics in Morocco or in France, um, he has like very uh, like just like just like like right and 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 subtle uh, opinions on things and he does intervene sometimes in public debates and he has used his personal experience and of course he came out in Morocco like a long time ago and and has actually I think and goes back and speaks there and 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 is like a very well-known figure and and I but I also think it's interesting in this book and what and you know that for example like there's such a complicated picture of France. Like France doesn't save people. Emigrating doesn't save people. Like, you know, these, these issues that he brings up some, in a lot of his work of like sexual violence and sexual hypocrisy, they're not just solved for the characters by, by leaving their home countries. And no, I mean, France is painted as, is a pretty conservative, I mean, a, a country that sees itself as liberated, but in, in effect, is very conservative to its own ideals. And economically oppressive, right? Like that's, the, in a way, the main thing. And he does, it's not also like he doesn't like insist on it in a very heavy-handed way. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a critique of France that's there, but also it's not a book that's all about, it's just there for these people, like that France is not this dreamland. They don't belong, and particularly they don't belong often economically. It's like a real hard and socially too, like she's not comfortable in certain spaces, right? Uh, yeah, I think yeah, I think in terms of uh, 
of Delatai as a public figure, there's also this going along with that. He 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 sort of is just always committed to writing the truth and writing his own real experience and the real experiences of other people. And I think that comes through and it's obviously he lives in France and he, he lives in Paris and he owns an apartment in Belleville and like loves his life in, in Paris. And there's, you can sort of feel that there's, uh, there's always like a balance of critique with, um, you know, he is the kind of person who, who will, will never write like pure negativity, you know, absolute trashing of a certain place or a certain situation. But, um, I think, you know, it's really powerful to see somebody depict France for what it is for these people as a counterpoint to these like normally very clean um, or very different takes on like Paris, the magical city where everybody wants to live and everybody loves it. And, you know, like expats, they do great here. Emily in Paris, whatever, all of these things. And, <laughs> you know, there's like... <laughs> or, 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 or that narrative of like sexual liberation that takes place by like, by like going to the West and not, not to, he doesn't downplay the like real, you know, you know the need for sexual liberation on the for the part of these, some of these characters but it's just it's just a matter of fact that there is no like there's no easy liberation anywhere yeah and it's, especially in a, in a country like france where we know that there is a lot of racism towards um towards people from who are immigrating from africa from the middle east from you know from all of these places we we know that to be the case and it's not a secret and so you know why why don't we hear about it more in literature why isn't it written more why isn't it translated more all of these questions um and i think i think it is sort of this very refreshing take on things that it, that that is like very heartbreaking and, and painful to read but I but I also think that something similar to Aloise's book in this book is that we also don't necessarily feel pity for these characters because we see them surviving and we see them finding joys and finding ways to be themselves despite the circumstances I mean imagine you know we this the um character at the beginning who has uh, gender affirming surgery uh you know this like idea that even in these circumstances this character is able to to kind of do that and and survive and kind of connect in that way with themselves and um i think that's really powerful too is like this idea that no matter what the circumstances are we can we can paint the circumstances for what they are but then his characters will always find the way to to live and to um be themselves he also doesn't wrap up any of their stories now that I think of it. They're all left kind of halfway, right? Right. I mean, Does anybody run away to don't. India? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> and 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 you don't, you know, and the one of the passages that I actually, it's overall, I would say it's like a, 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 a very funny book, but I do find like Zahira's whole plan to bring her, uh, how she's consulting her various sorcerers to like put love charms on her on her Pakistan lover and her plan to like bring the guy from Morocco like for a month so she can like really and you never find out what's going to happen with that I mean it's introduced and then just dropped you know there's no tying up of these strands but I think it actually works yeah I think you're sort of getting these like snapshots of their lives like these little tiny passages in in their lives and and you're seeing so many different people 
so many different characters, so many different snapshots in it. And I think it, it's not one linear narrative, which I, you know, most of the books, well, maybe not most of them, but Abdelatia has some other books too that are not linear, that are really um, fragmentary or they're like letters or they're unfinished. And I really like that because it, it, it makes everything feel very true to life. And it, it, it sort of feels like you're sort of just dipping into a real person's life for a little bit. And then you're dipping back out in the way that you might, if you were to meet this person somewhere. Um, I would like to ask one last question, if, if that's all right. So I not without you giving away any of your secrets that you are giving this workshop, what can a translation be an exploration of experimental translation? And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about what what do you mean by experimental translation? Oh, well, in the context of this workshop, which is happening next weekend, I am thinking of it in the sense of um, not experimental translation that is experimental because the original text is experimental. So not like my Anne Goretta translations that are experimental because I'm trying to mimic an experiment that happened in the French, but experimental in the sense of doing something to a text for the sake of um, producing a, a new meaning, um, producing me or like just exploring what the text might be hiding, what the text might have to offer, um, using these experiments on a text as sort of a way to uh, feel closer to the author. I know, for instance, um, I know, for instance, you know, like the three books I'm really looking at are Ventricle by Christian Hockey, which is Christian Hockey's like exploration of George Trockel's poetry. And he's like this German figure. And so you have um, Christian Hockey sort of like writing around his poems, like lifting lines from his poems to create new poems, making like fake conversations between himself and the author using lines from the author's interviews, like things like that. So it's sort of experimenting with his text in a way that would not necessarily be what we think of as typical translation, but that is an experiment using translation as like a way to kind of investigate the author's work and to feel closer to the author's work. Um, and the other books that I'm using, I won't go into, but essentially there it's the same idea of um, kind of dissolving the binary between author and translator, dissolving the the boundary of original and translation and instead just sort of using translation as a vehicle to like explore the original and explore what kinds of things might be um, found when you do experiments like that. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be a great course. Well, and yeah, it's like a two hour workshop. So I think I'm being a little too ambitious with what I'm trying to do, but it should be fun. And um, we can include a link to that, right? Oh, I mean, I'm not sure. I looked at the link just now recently and it said only now the course is all full up. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's true. <laughs> we'll, we'll include links to some of the interviews with you and of course to the books that we've discussed um, and to anything else that you think we should feature in the show notes. Um, and uh, thank you so much for, for joining us for this conversation. Um, it, yeah, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate your questions and you taking the time to to think about the books and, and read them. And especially you two of all people, you know, it's like 
the, my favorite thing that you you two have sort of read and thought about these books. It makes me very happy. Oh dear! Now now you've embarrassed us. Now we don't know what to say. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, and um, we'll be back uh, soon with another episode of Luck. And um, again, that was Emma Ramadan. Thanks, everyone. Bye.